Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and welcome to episode 785 with Christopher Cox. Christopher is a world-class writer who spent a boatload of time digging deep into the research on deadlines and how we can set them more effectively and the cool results that emerge from them. So you'll learn, one, the worst possible deadline you can give yourself. Two, the trick restaurateurs and theater artists use to consistently deliver quality. And three, the trick to making self-imposed deadlines more motivating. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to bits that we reference, please pay us a visit at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP785. And while you're at awesomeatyourjob.com, I recommend you check out our gold nugget email list, which provides a summary write-up of the actionable wisdom that Christopher shares right to your inbox. And you get those right as each episode releases, as well as unlocking the whole vault of all 785 such write-ups. Those are the gold nuggets at awesomeatyourjob.com. Here's a bit about Christopher. Christopher Cox has written about politics, business, books, and science for the New York Times Magazine, GQ, Harper's, Wired, and Slate. In 2020, he was named a Knight Science Journalism Fellow at MIT and a visiting scholar at NYU's Arthur L. Carter Journalism Institute. He was formerly the chief editor of Harper's Magazine and executive editor of GQ where he worked on stories that won the Pulitzer Prize, the Penn Literary Award for Journalism, and multiple national magazine awards. His book, The Deadline Effect, is out in paperback now. Big thanks to Christopher for sharing his wisdom with us. Big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no, no. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours, and small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Now, here's Christopher. Christopher, welcome to How to Be Awesome at Your Job. Hi, Pete. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, I'm excited to dig into some wisdom from your book, The Deadline Effect Inside Elite Organizations That Have Mastered the Ticking Clock. But first, I want you to regale us with some tales from Everest Base Camp and or summoning Kilimanjaro. Oh, wow. Yeah, that, that takes me back. That was one long trip that I took between college and grad school. I went all the way around the world and all sorts of things happen on those trips. So, so climbing Kilimanjaro is maybe the most dramatic story because it's a multi-day journey. And on the last day, you have to climb up, uh, at least on the route that I took, a very steep, I don't want to call it a cliff, but it's, it's almost a cliff. And it's covered in ice and snow, and it snowed that night that I was supposed to climb. And you start off at about two in the morning 
And part of the reason you start at two in the morning is you want the ice to be frozen. During the day, it starts to melt and it gets slippery. And so we're climbing up the ice and I was with one other person, my guide. And after about 30 minutes or 45 minutes up this steep, steep expanse, his flashlight goes out and he asked, he asked me, do you have your flashlight? And I said, yes, I do. And then we had about 40 seconds of that flashlight before it went out too. <laughs> and so then we did the final three hours of the climb in the cold and the snow and the steep in complete darkness, which was frightening at first. But then basically he said, I want you to put your feet exactly where my feet are and we'll just climb up that way. And, and we made it and we reached the top exactly as the sun rose over the savannah. And it was a feeling of pure euphoria. That's awesome. Cool. Well, so digging into the book a bit, can you share any particularly surprising, fascinating, counterintuitive discoveries you've made when putting together the deadline effect? Yes. Yeah, so the book, I did two modes of research to, to write the book. One was reading as many studies as I could on procrastination and deadlines and productivity that I could. And the other was I went out and did a bunch of reporting. So I ended up embedding in nine different organizations uh, and learning how they work. And so each of those two paths of, of research led me to different insights. I would say that just from reading the academic literature, the first thing that jumped out at me, which I saw replicated in study after study, was how powerful shortening a deadline can be. One of the very first papers I read was about the U.S. Census, and they were trying to figure out how to get more people to reply to the mail-in mail -in census. So not, the, not when the person comes to your door, but just the thing you get in the mail. And it turned out that if you could increase the response rate for the mail-in census, it would save, by one percentage point, it would save the U.S. government $75 million percentage point. So there's a big motivation to get more people to mail those things in. And so they did some research and studies and experiments to see how they could increase that response rate. And one of the things they discovered, which seemed counterintuitive to me at first, was if you actually give people less time to reply, they're more likely to, to do so. And so they did mm -hmm. an experiment where they had two groups. One had, they both had the same deadline to return the, the mail-in response to, to the census, uh, but one, one group had a week less to do it. And the group that had a week less to do it was more likely to turn it in. And there are all sorts of other positive benefits. They saw that the, the data was higher quality if the people had less time to turn it in too. And so I read that and that really got me intrigued. And that's when I started delving deeper into this subject. Oh, that is good. And so it's funny with, with these sorts of things, you can, after the fact, 2020 hindsight say, oh, yes, well, of course, if they don't have, they say, oh, I could do that. I need some time over the next few weeks is very different than, oh, shoot, I better get on this now while they have the piece of paper in hand. So I can, I guess I see the psychological effect at work. At least that's my speculation. Is that the, the driving force there? Yeah, I think that's right. There's a tendency to put things off into the last minute if you possibly can. And I often say like the very worst deadline that you can give yourself is just to say as soon as possible. It's better to have it be concrete. And even if it's further off than you might want it to be. So as soon as possible, and you feel like, okay, that means I'm going to get done tomorrow. But if you actually set a concrete date of, no, it's, I'm going to get done in a week, that tends to be more effective in getting you to actually complete the whatever project is you're trying to, trying to get done. And so one of the other things that came up in looking at how adjusting the timing of a deadline can increase 
your ability to complete a project was I read all these papers on procrastination and procrastination affects us all to to greater or lesser extents. One economist I read called it the universal human problem. But I read this interesting paper called Procrastination of Enjoyable Experiences. So you think of you procrastinated things you don't want to do, but it turns out we also tend to procrastinate things that we do want to do. And there are two social scientists named Suzanne Shu and Ayelet Nizi, and they, they devised this pretty ingenious experiment. They gave out coupons for a free slice of cake. So again, this is not something that you would think would pe- people would want to avoid. And one of the coupons expired in three weeks, and a different version of the coupon expired in two months. And it turned out that the people who had three weeks, so more than a month less time to get their free cake, were five times more likely to use their coupon. Five times. Yeah, like a dramatic effect of shortening the deadline there. And I think it's just what you say. It's with that urgency provided by the deadline and not giving people to be distracted from what they're supposed to be doing, you're, you're going to increase your likelihood of getting things done. Mm-hmm. Well, these are tantalizing insights uh, right there. If we were to zoom out a bit, what would you say is the core message, thesis, big idea behind the deadline effect? Well, in terms of what I saw in the organizations that I studied, uh, there were two big conclusions that sort of tie everything together. The first was successful organizations take deadlines seriously. And that sounds very simple, but that is step number one. You have to take them seriously. You have to set a deadline. You have to make it concrete. And the second thing that united them was they set up their deadlines in the organization so that no individual employee ever faced a deadline alone. So they increased what social scientists call interdependence. And so that meant that procrastination more or less gets taken out of the equation because there's so many different enforcement mechanisms on any individual person trying to get something done that they're goaded into action. They are, they're kept to schedule because so many other people are relying on them. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. So while an individual might have a deadline for himself or herself, there is a broader deadline that a team or a collection of contributors is all working towards, thus ensuring that the individual is able to get her done so that the team gets it over the line by the date. Is that accurate? Yeah, that that is accurate. And so the first place that I saw this uh, came from my own working life before I wrote this book. And and even now I, I have a career as a magazine editor. And I began the book with a question sort of in the back of my mind, which is, I've worked at a lot of different magazines uh, over the past 20 years, and they are populated by people who can be weirdos and artists and writers and all sorts of people who you don't expect to be the most disciplined human beings on earth. And yet somehow month after month for monthly magazine or week after week for weekly magazine, they publish something. They get a magazine out there consistently. Like For a while, I was the chief editor of Harper's Magazine, which is been publishing since 1850. And so what is that? 172 years. (laughs) They haven't missed an issue in 172 years. And how could that be after all sorts of different people coming through there? And so I started to look at at what made that possible. And 
I think they did those two things. They, they took deadlines seriously from the beginning. Deadline is a word that exists from the publishing industry. And they set up the process of, of publishing so that it was highly interdependent. So in my work as an editor, I would get writers to file an article to me. And that very relationship, the two of us working together, me reminding the writer to stick to their deadline, that was the first bit of interdependence that helped get things done on time. But it wasn't just that. I, in turn, was hearing from the art department saying, where is that article? We need to start to think about photographs for it or commissioning artwork for it. And the fact checkers were saying the same thing to me and to the art department and the copy editors were saying the same thing. And so eventually you have an organization that's highly interdependent where everyone is working together to get this project done, even though it ultimately is going to appear as an article with one person's name on it. And so that is a machine built to get people to meet their deadlines. And that same writer, if left to their own devices, they're writing an essay for themselves at their desk that they're not going to show to anyone, could end up procrastinating indefinitely and often do. I mean, I, I definitely know writers that I work with who say, I cannot work unless I have the demand set up upon me by magazine deadlines, editors, and everyone else waiting for me to turn my copy in. Mm-hmm. And so I'm curious, having worked with so many writers, how often do they hit the deadline that you originally established with them? <laughs> well, I would say that the writers who will meet the deadline without me saying anything are definitely the exception rather than the rule. But that's where I come in. And first, my mere presence there saying, please give this to me, reminding them helps a bit. And then I can also start using some of the strategies that, that might suggest themselves from the academic literature, which is if I have a writer and I know that I have to have the piece ready to print on Friday, I'm not going to tell them that to send it to me on Thursday. I'm going to tell them to send it to me a week ahead of time. And so you start pushing their deadline up, which pushes them into action earlier. And that gives everyone else more time to refine the piece, make it better, and becomes a positive reinforcement loop as you sort of work to make the, the article as good as possible before publication. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, so if we're zooming into professionals who want to do better about managing their time and, and meeting goals and objectives, are there some deadline magic tactics, principles, <laughs> guides that uh, we can take on to achieve more better? Yeah. So, I mean, I think that Set a deadline, make it concrete. That's step one. When you, If you can set your own deadline, then give yourself maybe a, just a little bit less time to finish it than you feel comfortable with. That shorter deadline might be serve as an inspiration. And then the bigger the project, the more you might start thinking about strategies like self-imposing interim deadlines. And this is something that I saw when I went out reporting. I spent some time with John George von Gerichten, who is a famous restaurateur. He has Oh gosh, uh, 45, maybe it's more restaurants around the world. And I went with John George as he opened two restaurants back to back over two days in May of 2019. And watching him do that, I got to see his organization was a machine that was perfectly tailored to opening restaurants. They'd done it often and they knew how to do it, meeting their deadline, but having the final product, having the restaurant 
be as buttoned up as possible. One of the reasons they want it to be as buttoned up as possible on day one is they know that reviewers are going to come that first week often, and they can't afford to have something sloppy being put in front of a reviewer who might make or break the restaurant. And so John George and his team were masters of using interim deadlines. And the way that they did that was something called mock services, which is basically what it sounds like. They, as soon as they could, and as often as they could, they served meals in these new restaurants, the restaurant before it had opened, pretending that it was a regular service night at the restaurant. So I went to, there's a restaurant called, one of the two restaurants was called The Fulton. It was in lower Manhattan. And I first went to it about 30 days before it opened. And that first day that I was there, they're not serving to real customers, but they sat down some of the wait staff. They even brought in members of the construction company's staff and uh, I think some interior decorators. And they, they sat them down and they had they served them some of the dishes they were, they were planning for that restaurant. And they worked on fine-tuning the service part of it. They worked on fine-tuning the taste. They asked them for their opinion on everything. And they did that day after day after day, every single day until it opened. And that was... One, it ensured that on actual opening day that they were ready, and it also allowed them to improve consistently over that that same period of, of all these mock services up until opening day. And of course, beyond, but on opening day, you wouldn't have known that it was the first day it was operating. Everything was pretty darn seamless. I was very impressed by what I saw there. And that notion of, of opening day not necessarily being what we assume when we think about an opening day, you also saw in theatrical releases. Can you talk about that? Yes. So I spent some time in the public theater and I watched them develop a a show for its world premiere. And what I saw there were a few different things happening at once. They had that same daily check-in, daily revisions that that John George had in, in his restaurant. But one of the things that really struck me about watching this come together was I had a fairly naive notion of of what a theatrical production looked like when you put it on. I thought, okay, you know, you write the play and you rehearse it and then there's dress rehearsal and then it's done. But what I actually saw with this, this performance was dress rehearsal was the midpoint in a longer process of improving the performance, improving the play that they're putting on. So I went to dress rehearsal. And then after that, I went to the first of several preview performances where they had audiences there. And they actually changed the performance considerably based on the feedback from the audience, which makes all the sense in the world. I mean, the, the audience is sort of who you're there to perform for. But I found it inspiring, really. And then when I talked to the director, he said, oh, yeah, like this is the way it's always worked in, in theater. The social science name for it is sense making and updating. So you take a pause after each day and you figure out what's going right, and what's going wrong. And then you update according to what you assess uh, along those lines. And the theater producers have figured out how to formalize that process in a way that we don't often do in our, in our regular life. And seeing that in the theater made me realize that that is the sort of maneuver that we all need to do in in our everyday life, you know, not just for work projects, for everything, like take a pause every, every day or more often than that, depending on what you're doing and take time to assess what you're doing, the effectiveness and think about how you might update it. And Mm -hmm. so the interesting academic study I read about since making and updating 
it was called More and Less Effective Updating. And it studied 19 different ER teams during a training exercise. And the training exercise was they had a young boy come in as a, as a patient. Again, it's just an exercise, so it wasn't real. And who is complaining of trouble breathing. And the experiment had been set up so that a crucial piece of equipment, a mask they used to help the child to breathe, had failed. And they were testing to see who's going to stop and just try to make sense of the situation. Like, why is this child, why are we not helping this child? This device, which is supposed to help this child breathe, why is it not working? And if you do it well, you will see that this mask is broken and you'll update your behavior accordingly. And the teams that were most effective were the ones who had that instinct, I guess, to stop what they were doing. Even though there's a child on the on the table and you everything is pushing you to sort of just heedlessly push forward, it doesn't seem like there's time to stop and assess the situation. But those teams that did were the ones that saved the child's life in this exercise because they were able to say, okay, let's figure out what's wrong here. And once they figured out what the broken mask, then it was easy to, to keep the child healthy and stable. That was sort of a high stakes version of the same process. But from medicine to theater to restaurant opening, it's a process that we would all do well to remember to do. That's handy. Certainly. So, so you have a deadline. And so some piece of completion, I guess there's all kinds of layers of final. <laughs> and in some yeah. ways, it's never final. You're, you're constantly potentially iterating and tweaking on in, but there are our key milestones in terms of someone's going to eat our food <laughs> yes, or the doors are going to open to people from the public. And those are different dates at different milestones and, and different expectations. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, I think that we talked earlier about interdependence. There's a difference. It's not really interdependence, but it's the same mechanism where if you know that there's going to be a real paying audience out there watching you perform or a real paying group of people coming in to eat dinner at your restaurant, that adds stakes to what you're doing. And it concentrates the mind, as they say. And so John George, knowing that that first day that that restaurant opened, there were going to be real people there expecting high quality service and cuisine, that motivated him to get that restaurant as good as possible for opening day. And yet he still continued to improve the restaurant after it opened. Some deadlines, that's the way they work. You want it to be as good as possible on opening day or whenever it's due, but you have a chance to improve it beyond it. And part of the wisdom of these organizations, and, and I'm trying to help readers discover in the book, is how to take that move, that having what is basically a finished product ready before the actual real final deadline, and that gives you time to improve, revise, make it better. Again, in the magazine world, that's what I dealt with all the time. Just getting that first draft out of the writer was the, maybe the most crucial step. And then we had hopefully enough time to go through revision after revision and make it better. And that's, I mean, obviously that's going to be better than the thing that's completed at the very last minute. Like the term paper you did in college that you did mm -hmm. an all-nighter for, that was not your best term paper, was it? It was the one that you labored over and gave yourself extra time on because you knew it was super important. And so recreating that dynamic is what I saw these the most effective of these organizations doing. And in the book, I try to point the reader toward ways to build that time into your schedule so you can do the same thing. 
Well, yes, let's talk about some of those approaches. I'm thinking about when there are self-imposed deadlines, often they, well, they just don't have the pull that that, uh, hundreds of people are showing up at a restaurant. (laughs) It has. So anyway, we can get some more of that motivational oomph when it's just something that we made up for ourselves? Yeah, that's a great question. And I would say that first you set up these interim deadlines, right? You set up, let's say you're trying to finish. Let's say it's a term paper. Why not? You know, we've, a lot of us have had that experience. If you set up a deadline for yourself, say a month before it's due, I want to have the first draft done. Or if it's a longer work, I want to have the first chapter done. Then do that. Impose that deadline on yourself. And there's good news about those kind of deadlines. Even fake deadlines, even self-imposed deadlines are effective. They're not as effective as a deadline where there's a real penalty imposed upon you or a real audience out there, but they still have an effect. Actually, there's an experiment that I write about in the book. Daniel Ariely conducted this with his students. Uh, He wrote that book, Predictably Irrational. Ariely set up an experiment with his class where he basically had three different experimental groups within it. One group got to choose the deadlines for three papers they would write during the semester. One group all had the same deadline, which is the last day of class. And one group, Ariely imposed evenly spaced deadlines for the three papers throughout the semester. You probably can guess the outcome. The people who had their papers all due on the last day of class performed the worst. The people who had mandatory deadlines evenly spaced by the professor did the best. But there's something interesting about the third group where they got to choose their own deadlines. Some of that group chose the last day of class. They maybe thought that the more time, the better. They would perform better if they had the most flexibility, but they actually did just as badly as the people who had it all on the last day of class by design. But within the people who got to choose, those who self-imposed evenly spaced deadlines on themselves did just as well as the ones who had mandatory evenly spaced deadlines. So those were fake deadlines. There was no penalty if they didn't turn it in on the date that they said. But those deadlines had an effect. They, they were almost like real deadlines for that class. So that's the good news for those of you out there who are thinking, well, I can self-impose deadlines, but it won't make any difference because they won't be real. Like If you believe in them and you set them and you make them concrete, they will have an effect now. Yeah. Well, and to that point, it's, mm-hmm. it's interesting that you can deduce some stakes and some relevance to your deadlines as opposed to them being purely arbitrary. Like, I, I think these students, again, I'm speculating, could say, okay, if I don't complete these in an ev- evenly spaced fashion, I'm going to have a brutally miserable (laughs) few days of my life. And so there's that. And so I I guess that's that's one means of making them realer for for yourself is by having an understanding and articulation of just what would happen if I didn't hit my self-imposed deadline. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, I think there's like, it goes back to the original lesson, which is set a concrete deadline take deadlines seriously is the most basic part of it. And if you're thoughtful about it, if you're just deliberate about these things, it's going to have a big effect on your on your performance and how good you are getting things done before the last minute. 
So these students were were wise, those who chose evenly spaced deadlines on their own. They planned through what they thought would be most effective and, and put it into place, and, and it worked out for them. Uh-huh. And you're about to say a second piece, please lay it on us. So first, self-imposed deadlines with nothing else going for them will have an effect. But if you can bring in some enforcement mechanisms, if you can bring in that audience, bring in some way to give those self-imposed deadlines teeth, as I call it in the book, then you should. And well, I did it, I did it myself. So I, I wrote this book and it had a deadline. The publisher wanted it on March 1st. And I knew that I needed to meet that deadline. It would be completely embarrassing to write a book about deadlines and miss my own deadline. <laughs> and so I was very deliberate about it. I had a little bit over a year to write it and to report it. And so I set up a very fleshed out schedule for that year. And I planned when I was going to write each chapter, when I was going to research each chapter. And I hit most of those interim deadlines pretty well, not perfectly, but those interim deadlines were there and they helped me and I got things done. Some things came in early, some things came in late, but it it all worked out in the wash. But one of the things that I did to help make those interim deadlines more effective was to start promising a chapter to my editor or promising a chapter to my agent or to my wife. It didn't matter. It didn't have to be someone who had actual the authority over me or anything. It could be a best friend. I'd say, well, I'm going to finish this chapter about John George and I'm going to send it to you. And just that promise, bringing someone else into the process, increasing the interdependence of what is often a very solitary pursuit, writing a book, helped me, helped me get things done on time and it meant that by the time March 1st rolled around and, and my editor was ready for my book, I was ready to send it to him. That's good. All right. So so anyone will do. Yeah. I mean, anyone will do. And I think that, well, how to put this best? Not to diminish your wife in any way. She's very special. <laughs> no, exactly. No. <laughs> in fact, I would say like promising it to my wife, that was the most demanding one. I, I wanted to impress her. But yeah, I mean, like I would say try to create multiple enforcement mechanisms for yourself. So don't just, if you're a writer, don't make it only your wife you send it to, but also find someone else who's an outside party. So you have, it's like in the magazine world, like me thinking like, oh, I have to meet the demands of the art department and the fact-checking department and the copy editor. And it's the multiple connections of interdependence that is the most effective at keeping you on target. Yeah, you know, I'll, I'll tell you, with the podcast, having tens of thousands of folks <laughs> who just sort of expect it's going to be an episode on Monday and Thursday. Yeah. It uh, does wonders. <laughs> oh, for sure. For, I mean, me. you know, yeah. Having that audience out there, whether you're doing a podcast or putting a magazine out or putting on a theater, theatrical production, it really concentrates you and, and keeps you on target. And Christopher, I want to get your take. Is there a dark side to deadlines? Is it all benefit or are, are there some watchouts we should be concerned about? Well, I've certainly come to embrace and, and, and respect and rely upon deadlines. And I do think that the notion that I find myself pushing back against over and over again, especially when people know that I've written this book about deadlines, is that deadlines and creativity are somehow at odds, that we associate it with the taskmaster putting us to work and there's no room for creativity. And if it has to be done by a certain date, then what happens if I have a brilliant insight that would only arrive if I gave myself an endless time to work on it? 
And I just don't think that's the case. Like I've seen it with the writers, brilliant writers, poets, novelists, all of them, they thrive under a deadline. And I saw the same thing in organizations as as different from that as like the Air Force. Like I went and embedded in this Air Force unit and they were so deadline driven and yet, and they were so focused, but they also seemed the most at ease of anyone that I saw because they knew they were dialed in. They knew that they were going to meet their deadlines. And so they didn't feel any stress. And the I compared it to a state of flow. This this state of complete concentration that has elements of euphoria to it. So I guess I would say that there is a dark side to deadlines, but only if you're not using them effectively. The original deadline effect is a concept in the economic world the tendency to delay things until the last minute. So if you are negotiating and you have a deadline to finish up your negotiation, the deadline effect is that draw that makes you not settle until the last minute. It's why settlements are reached on the courthouse steps. It's that deadline. But that's miserable. Like procrastinating until the last minute and then rushing something out. And so that's the dark side. But If you embrace deadlines and know how to effectively deploy them, you can get rid of all that last minute nonsense and eliminate the painful period of procrastination and just get right into that mode of creative, productive work as early as possible. And that is deeply satisfying. All right. Well, Christopher, tell me anything else you want to make sure to mention before we hear about some of your favorite things. Well, it's out in paperback. The book's out in paperback now. And I would love for people to pick it up. But no, I think you covered quite a lot in a short amount of time. Oh, cool. All right. Well, could you share now a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? There is a quote attributed to Einstein, which is, everything should be as simple as possible, but not simpler. And that to me, spoke to me in my in my deadline work. And when I looked into that quote, he did say it, but he said something much more long-winded about it. <laughs> How ironic. <laughs> and it got boiled down into that more pithy version. And that inspired me in a way because he had a brilliant idea and even he needed an editor to improve it. All right. And how about a favorite study or experiment or piece of research? Well, I read a lot of different studies for this book, but probably the most fun. Well, one would be that procrastination of enjoyable experiences because it just was so strange to think that people would put off getting themselves a free slice of cake. But there was another one called Procrastination by Pigeons. And it was part of a whole universe of animal studies that show that animals too procrastinate. There was a rat study where rats tended to prefer a larger shock if they could put it off into the future than a smaller one right now. Hmm. So <laughs> it's a wild and wonderful world out there when you start to think about deadlines and procrastination and and the way that not just humans uh, have a relationship with time. Well, in a way, that's a really good synopsis of what procrastination does. You'll get a larger shock later. (laughs) Yeah, no, we impose that pain upon ourselves. Exactly what happens. Over and over and over again. We don't learn. And just like rats, we don't learn. And how about a favorite book? Well, one book that I've been thinking about a lot recently is an old favorite, but that's Robert Caro's The Power Broker. It's a big, weighty doorstop, but I just, I mean, he is the master of research and going as deep as you can go on a subject. And I talk about him a little bit in my book. And 
as a negative example because he's been working on his big LBJ project for, I guess, 50 years now. But I want to tell Robert Caro here and now, I think what you're doing is wonderful and I love your book. So forgive me for making fun of you a little bit <laughs> in, in my own book. And a favorite tool, something you used to be awesome at your job. Well, I think I probably will echo a lot of people who talk about shutting off devices and finding time for yourself to be isolated. But here's a much more mundane one. A while ago, I switched to waking up in the morning to make my coffee. And instead, I pre-program my coffee every morning. So it's waiting for me when I wake up. And that has done wonders for my morning productivity. Okay. And is there a key nugget you share that folks tend to really quote back to you frequently? Well, there's a part of the book that we didn't talk about, but I ended up doing one part of the book undercover and I got a job at Best Buy. And the deadline in question there was Black Friday. So I ended up working in Best Buy on Black Friday and I watched how they completely reformed the way that store works just for that one day to handle the huge increase in crowds. And I don't know if Best Buy is often thought of as a model organization, but what I saw there absolutely impressed me. So whenever I meet someone who's read the book, they often ask me if I really did work at Best Buy. And I can prove it by talking at length about different flat screen televisions. So did you did you confess? You say undercover. Did they know what you were up to? Or you're just pure normal employee? Christopher, <laughs> I see you have uh, quite the resume in the writing world. Uh, what makes you interested in electronics? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I had to disguise some of my resume and play up other parts of it. I, <laughs> I made a promise to myself that I would not lie to anyone, but I did not tell them, for example, that I was at that moment employed by a magazine. So yeah, I, I tried to go in through the front door. I went to their PR department and said, I want to write about Best Buy. I want to write about Black Friday. They spoke to me for a while and then ended up ghosting me. And after about a year of trying that, I said, all right, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find a different way to tell the story and applied for a job and got one and worked for a few months just to prepare for that Black Friday. And then finally, when it was all over, I told everyone I'd worked with what I was up to. And I changed their names for the books because they weren't expecting to be written about. And I mean, it's a very positive chapter. So I hope that they're happy with it, even though I had to get in through slightly less than direct means. I'm just thinking about you've got your own deadline for the book about deadlines. And you're like, oh, man, I got a shift. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yes, that was a problem. <laughs> it's time consuming to hold down a day job at Best Buy while, while also writing a book. But somehow I, I managed to squeeze it all in. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? The easiest thing to do would be to go to deadlineeffect.com. That's deadline-effect.com. And it's got a bit of everything about the book and about me there. All right. And do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks looking to be awesome at their jobs? Well, I'll repeat the first lesson, which is take deadlines seriously. I promise you. I mean, you probably think you already do, but just be disciplined about it. Be deliberate about it in everything you do. And ultimately, it's liberating. As your productivity goes up, you become happier. You spend less time feeling that painful procrastination and your work life will just get that much better. All right. Christopher, it's been a treat. I wish you much luck with all your deadlines. Thank you, Pete. It's been great to be with you. I was intrigued by the studies showing both the shorter coupon time with the Redemption for Cake, as well as the shorter deadline time for the census 
mail-in reporting. In both instances, less time created better results. And I think that's really intriguing. When might we be better off to set a shorter deadline for ourselves to spark a bit of urgency and action instead of the temptation to set a long deadline for ourselves? Like, well, I want to have as much time as possible to be able to do a really good job and see what new information comes to light. There may be a time and a place for long deadlines, but hearing from Christopher here makes me think that shorter is often better and to invoke that power perhaps more often. Again, if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items that we mentioned, please pay us a visit at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP785. Hope to catch you next time and peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers, subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.